This is Audible. Doctor Who. Horrors of War by Justin Richards. Read by Katie Manning. They told us we'd be waiting weeks for additional medical staff, and yet here the doctor was. He wasn't at all what I would have expected. From what we'd been told about the staff shortages, the other nurses and I had expected a much younger man, fresh out of medical school, barely qualified and keen to do his bit. He'd probably have worn spectacles, and he'd certainly have worn a white coat. But when this one entered the ward and introduced himself to me, he was nothing like that at all. The first thing I saw were his eyes. I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's true. I heard him cough and turned around to find myself looking him right in the eye. They were old, far older than those of any of the men I'd met, and yet at the same time, they were somehow young. Far younger than they had any right to be. There was a kindness in his face and a firmness too. He wouldn't suffer fools gladly. I could tell that right away. I could also tell that he was the doctor. No one else would have that absolutely assured sense of authority in a hospital. Even the officers who visited us usually seemed to be out of their element to a degree. The doctor, on the other hand, looked as if he owned the room, as well as any room adjacent to it, and probably the entire building. Even with his shock of white hair, he looked younger than his eyes made him seem. The lines in his face were accentuated by a slightly awkward smile creasing across his face. "I'm terribly sorry," he said, his voice carrying a hint of apology with its authority. But I was wondering, nurse, if you could possibly tell us where we are. It took me a moment to register his question. Of course, doctor, I said, and a momentary look of surprise passed across his face. You're in the main recovery ward. We bring the men through here when they're no longer in need of surgery or round-the-clock care. You know who I am? He asked. I realised that he hadn't actually introduced himself. I just assumed from his manner that he was a doctor. Now that I looked him up and down, I could see that he wasn't dressed at all like one—a frilly white shirt and a red velvet jacket were hardly standard field hospital issue, and nor was the tartan cloak he was wearing over them. I'm sorry, sir. I just assumed we lost Doctor Penrose last week. And we were told new medical staff would be assigned to us eventually. I thought you were. I'm sorry. It was presumptuous of me. The smile had crept back onto his face, now with genuine warmth in place of the awkwardness of before. My dear girl, there's no need to apologise. He said, "We're just a little shaken from the journey. That's all. I am the doctor, and this is my assistant, Miss Grant." Hello," said a girl who I hadn't noticed before. She stepped out from behind him and offered me her hand to shake. She was a tiny little thing, blonde and friendly, and dressed in the most outlandish pink ensemble. It made the doctor's outfit seem subdued by comparison. I took her hand and shook it. "I'm Nurse Grantham. Forgive me, but you don't seem properly dressed, Nurse Grant." I'm not a nurse," she explained. "I'm," she faltered at that and looked up at the doctor, who took over the explanation. "Joe's more of an administrative assistant," he offered. "She helps me with my work and research." "Research? Oh, you're from a medical school." His clothes suddenly made a lot more sense. So did his manner. If he transferred to us from a teaching position, then that would explain the air of authority and the understanding kindness.
Presumably there weren't enough students left to train back home. They'd all be at the front or training at other field hospitals. Something like that, yes. He replied, exchanging a look with Miss Grant. I wonder, are there some patients here that I could talk to? Just to check on how their recovery is going, that sort of thing? Well, of course, Doctor. I said, leading him over to one of the beds nearest the door. This is Private Campbell. He came to us two weeks ago with some very nasty injuries. Surgery went well. He's starting to walk again and generally making very good progress. Private Campbell sat up in bed as we approached. He'd clearly heard some of our conversation from across the ward. He was a sweet boy, barely twenty if he was a day. The beard he'd been growing over two weeks of bed rest did nothing to make him seem any more mature. Most of the left side of his body was still bandaged, and he had a patch over his left eye, which, along with the beard, made him look like a boy playing pirates. I liked Campbell, for all his childishness. He was chafing at his bed rest, desperate to get back to the front and do his duty. He murmured in his sleep about that sometimes, about needing to do his duty. I didn't watch him sleep often, but when the nights were long and the ward was quiet, I would sometimes find myself looking over at him. It's a pleasure to meet you, Private Campbell, the doctor said warmly. And a good, solid name you have there. Campbell smiled at this. A little smirk that made him seem even younger. Now, let's see, the doctor said, taking Campbell's charts from the end of the bed and glancing over them. His eyes widened as he did so. Well, Miss Grantham here really wasn't exaggerating about your injuries, was she? I'd say you're very lucky to be here, Private. I certainly am, Doctor. Campbell said, winking at me with his good eye as he did. Miss Grant noticed this and glanced across at me, smiling. I tried not to blush. The doctor didn't notice any of this as he was still flicking through Campbell's charts. Then he looked up at Campbell and smiled broadly. Just a few questions I want to ask to make sure your memory wasn't affected by the blast. That's been two weeks, Doctor. I think I'd have noticed. Campbell joked. The Doctor shrugged slightly, putting the charts back. Yes, well, he said. It's still better to check these things, and it'll give me an inside view of what goes on here. Now, first things first. Are they taking care of you properly? Oh, absolutely, said Campbell, glancing back to me with that smirk of his. Miracle workers, they are proper angels. No, you'll have no complaints for me. Oh, wonderful. I'm very glad to hear that, said the doctor. Now, where were you injured? Both legs, left side of the chest, left arm and the side of the head. Campbell responded quickly. I'm hardly likely to forget all that lot, am I? He indicated the eye patch and the wrappings. The doctor nodded. Well, quite. He admitted, but I was speaking geographically. Where were you when you received these injuries? Well, Ypres, of course. Campbell replied. Miss Grant gasped slightly at that, though I couldn't tell why. Most of our boys in the hospital had been injured at Ypres, so it shouldn't have been a surprise. Maybe she knew the town somehow. Yes, I suspected as much. Said the doctor with another look at Miss Grant. His smile seemed slightly fixed now. One last question, Private Campbell, and then we'll leave you to your bed rest. Campbell shrugged. He wasn't in a hurry to be left alone. The doctor continued. Could you tell me exactly when you received these injuries? Well, two weeks ago, like Annie said. The private seemed confused. The doctor didn't seem to notice him using my first name. Oh, hang on! You said exactly. Campbell went on with a hint of realization in his voice. 
I get this game now. Checking my memory. Well, there's no need to worry on that score. It was October the 4th, 1914. 1914? Miss Grant exclaimed, with a very worried tone to her voice. But Doctor, that's... The Doctor cut her off before she could continue. Quite correct, Private Campbell. Well done. He said, still smiling the warmth, now somehow faded. It's 1914. Great War is just getting started. And there's nothing wrong with your memory. What do you mean, just getting started? Private Campbell asked. It's been going for months. It'll be wrapped up before you know it. Jonesy was just telling me it'll be all over by Christmas. Weren't you, Jonesy? He turned to the bed next to him, the one right next to the door. Jonesy? He asked again. Now where's Jonesy got to? The bed was empty. A horrible feeling washed over me. Campbell said, Annie, you were talking to Jonesy just now. Where'd you send him off to? I didn't send him anywhere, I muttered. The doctor heard me. I'm not sure if Campbell and Miss Grant did. Memories were flashing through my mind. Visions of other men vanished from their beds. Not again, I whispered. Please, no, not again. All at once I was hurrying through the door, looking for some sign of Private John Taylor. I knew there was only one place she could be going, the same place as all the others. The doctor followed me out as I ran down the corridor towards the main entrance. It was dark and cold outside, a proper winter's afternoon. I hadn't realised how late in the year it really was, how early it was getting dark or how cold it was getting. I hurried from the hospital and blindly began to search the darkness. There was a mist closing in, almost thick enough to be fog. The doctor came out behind me, his eyes seeming to immediately adjust to the dark. There, he said, his voice strong and clear. He produced a kind of lamp and shone it into the distance where a man stopped walking and turned back to look back at us. Private Taylor was just a little older than Campbell, his hair a mess of brown curls, his cheeks smooth and gaunt. Even through the mist and darkness, I could see that he was pale, with deep, dark bags under his eyes. In the ward, he'd looked just as much a child as Campbell did. Now he looked old and tired. He didn't seem scared, he didn't seem angry, he didn't even seem sad. He just seemed so very tired. Private Taylor, I called out to him. John, I didn't know what else to say. I'd never seen any of the men who'd disappeared after they'd left their beds before now. He looked at me, then he shook his head. I can't, he said, his voice cracking and shaky. I can't come back. Not anymore. Not again. I'm broken. I'm broken already, and it's never going to stop. He was sobbing now. Four years, he said. Four years. And then he turned and carried on walking away. The doctor started after him, but I just stood there. I'd known that the war had traumatized him, but I thought he was getting better. I, I thought they all were. The cold fog closed in around me. I couldn't see anything through it anymore. But I couldn't bring myself to go back inside in case the doctor brought him back. I don't know how long I was stood there. After a time, a figure emerged from a fog. At first I felt a tiny foolish hope that it was Taylor coming back. But it was the doctor, his expression grave. I lost him in the fog. He said bitterly, no idea where he went. No, I replied, my voice shaking. We've no idea where any of them go. The doctor looked at me for a moment as I stood there, shivering in the cold. Then he swung his cloak from his shoulders and draped it over mine. I think you better tell me what's been happening, Nurse Grantham, he said, just as soon as you've had some tea.
Miss Grant made tea for the three of us in Dr. Penrose's old office. It was the doctor's office now, I supposed. She and I sat on chairs while the doctor perched on top of the desk. I don't know if it was due to the shock, but that was the best cup of tea that I had ever had. I drank deeply and gratefully. Miss Grant sipped hers more slowly, all the while keeping her eyes on me. The doctor didn't touch his. Now then, Nurse Grantham, he said when I'd finished my tea. Let's begin at the beginning, shall we? Miss Grant giggled and he shot her a questioning look. I'm sorry, she offered apologetically. It just reminded me of Alice in Wonderland. You know, begin at the beginning and go on until you reach the end, then stop. I was just <laughs> picturing you as the White Rabbit. I couldn't help but smile, and so did the doctor. Yes, I suppose that is a rather ridiculous notion, he admitted. But then he turned back to me, and his face was suddenly grave. All the same, I really do think you should tell us what's been going on. So I did. It's been happening ever since the start of the war. The men, the boys they bring in, they aren't just hurt, not just physically, I mean. They're scared out of their minds, and that trauma's harder to cure than most of their injuries. The boys have been calling it shell shock, and that's what it is, really. Shock. Nervous and mental shock is what Dr. Penrose put it down as in the end, and it's... it's hellish, Doctor. I've seen grown men screaming like lost children, boys barely old enough to shave who've witnessed things so terrible they can't speak anymore. We do what we can for them, but none of us has ever seen anything like this before. You mean the shell shock? Miss Grant asked. I mean the war. The doctor took my empty teacup from me and replaced it with his. I drank gratefully before continuing. Most of them, they just lie there. They're too traumatized even to move. But in the last couple of weeks, you saw what happened with Private Taylor. You heard what he said. He wasn't just scared. No, said the doctor. He wasn't just scared. It was as if something had snapped inside him. He was completely lost, convinced that there was no point in going on. But he'd been fine, I told them. He was recovering, doing well. I'd spoken to him this afternoon. He was doing so well. Then so were the others. Then they just stood up and walked out into the night. I stared down into my cup, not looking at either of them. I heard Miss Grant's chair scrape across the floor, and then I felt her arm around my shoulder. The doctor's voice was soft and comforting, but I could hear an edge to it. He was trying to be kind to me, but he was not angry exactly, but somehow aggrieved as if there was an injustice which needed to be righted. How many have there been, Annie? Seven, I whispered. Taylor was the seventh. I looked up. What's happening? I asked him. What's happening to them? I don't know. The doctor said, and I could feel that edge in his voice grow sharper. But I intend to find out. Do you mind if I call you Annie? Miss Grant asked me later on. The doctor was sat on the floor in the corner of the office, occupied with the empty teacups. He was balancing them on top of each other, presumably as a way of marshalling his thought processes. Miss Grant and I were still sat beside the desk, out of the doctor's way and not disturbing him. Please do, I said, glad of a hint of familiarity for the first time in too long. Well then, for heaven's sake, call me Joe, she said, and we both laughed. The doctor made a tutting noise in the corner before coming over to the desk and starting to rummage through the desk drawers. Why do they never have anything useful? 
he muttered to himself. What are you looking for, Doctor? Joe asked. This, he exclaimed triumphantly, producing a fountain pen and an empty brandy bottle. The latter explained a lot about how Dr. Penrose had coped. Until, that is, he hadn't, and he'd disappeared just like the others. The doctor strode back across the room to his corner and started to balance the teacups on top of the bottle. Joe turned to me and shrugged, pulling a face which I couldn't help but giggle at. Then a thought occurred to me. How did you know my name? I asked. Well, the doctor said it just now, Joe replied, a little confused. Didn't you tell him? I shook my head. Joe looked over to the doctor and called out to him. Doctor? Hmm? The doctor asked, not looking up from his precariously balanced stack of things. He'd found a corkscrew from somewhere and stuck it into the top of the bottle, balancing the fountain pen on top of it, with the teacups hanging around it somehow. Yes, Joe? What is it? How did you know Annie's name? Joe asked. The doctor looked up now, his eyes narrowing, as if trying to figure it out for himself. Someone told me, he said eventually. A long time ago now. He returned to his tinkering, but kept talking. We were talking about the war, about how it started. About ways it could have gone differently. Then when I met a nurse Grantham here, at the start of the war, and... And knowing what I do of coincidence and causality, well, I made something of an educated guess that it was the same Nurse Grantham as saved the Archduke. Saved the Archduke? Joe asked incredulously. It was more by look than intention, I told her. I just happened to be there when it happened. I didn't think I needed to tell her where. Everybody knew where it had begun, outside the Mostar Café in Sarajevo. I heard the shots, hurried to help and did what I could. I couldn't save the Duchess. I could barely save him. Perhaps if I had saved her, then this whole damn war could have been averted. I didn't realize I was swearing until I had. I didn't realize how much I'd been blaming myself until I had. The doctor looked up sharply at this. Then he stood up and walked over. He crouched down in front of me, his arms resting on his knees, and looked me in the eye. Now, you listen to me, young lady, he said kindly but firmly. This war is in no way your fault. This war was inevitable. Europe has been teetering on the brink of it for years. You did not fail to prevent a war that day. You succeeded in saving a man's life, and that is nothing to be ashamed of. It is something of which you should always be proud. Whatever the circumstances, whoever the man, you did nothing that day for which you should feel guilt or shame or anything else like that. Do you understand? I nodded in that moment, utterly convinced. The doctor smiled, then looked back at his contraption. It had started to revolve while he had been talking to me. He frowned slightly. Joe, meanwhile, had been bursting with something to say. But the Archduke died, didn't he? I thought that was the whole point. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand was what started this whole war. She looked questioningly, almost pleadingly, at the doctor. Wasn't it? No, you're quite right, Joe, he told her. Franz Ferdinand Karl Ludwig Josef Maria, Archduke of Austria and heir to the Austrian throne, was assassinated on the 28th of June, 1914. His death was the catalyst that set off this inevitable war. The assassination was sloppy, ill-thought-out, poorly planned and shoddily executed. But in the end, it worked. Franz Ferdinand died. Except, of course, that thanks to Annie, he didn't. The doctor looked almost embarrassed at this. I really should have looked into this sooner, he muttered. 
Would you please explain to me what's going on? I asked, my voice trembling with bewilderment. You stand here and talk of history and what should have been as if you somehow know. And what's more, as if what has actually happened can somehow be wrong. Doctor, there are things happening here which scare me. But right now, none of them are scaring me more than you and the things you were saying. Yes, of course. The doctor said as if suddenly realising that I was still in the room. I quite apologise, Annie. I should have explained sooner. I promise you I will make everything as clear as I can. But first, and this really is important, would you come over here, please? I did as he asked, and he gestured towards the still-spinning contraption in the corner. Now, if you could please just hand me that topmost cup. I reached down, picked up the cup perched on the top of the contraption, and held it out towards the doctor. Nothing else happened. Well, that settles it then, he said, not taking the cup from me. I do apologise, Annie. Do sit down and I'll tell you everything I can. Doctor, asked Joe, just what is that thing? Well, Joe, it's a little hard to explain, but in effect, it's a modified time flow analogue with a few adjustments of my own to refocus the output along a direct pathway to the nearest temporal anomaly. He registered the blank expressions on both of our faces and continued. To put it simply, it's a way of exorcising from the timeline things which shouldn't be there. Like us? Joe asked. No, not like us, Joe. The TARDIS is rather more sophisticated than this lash-up, and it keeps us anchored as a part of the events here. But if someone or something had been brought here accidentally or dragged through by the damage to the timeline, this device would draw it out and contain it in that bottle ready for disposal, in theory. The damage to the timeline being the fact that the Archduke survived, Joe asked, clearly understanding a lot more than I did. That's why you got Annie to touch it, isn't it? You thought it might be her that caused history to change. I'm rather afraid I did, the doctor admitted, rubbing his cheek sheepishly. But it appears that Nurse Grantham's presence here is simply a case of synchronous serendipity. Or, as you'd probably put it, Joe, a piece of jolly good luck. This is explaining, is it? I asked, and then worried for a moment that the doctor might take offence. But he just smiled at me. I'm sorry, my dear. I really should have started at the beginning. You see, Joe and I haven't been sent here officially, at least not by any official organisation you'd recognise. I think I'd already worked that much out, I said. So who did send you, and what are you doing here? We're here to help, the doctor said, and more than anything else I'd heard today, I knew I could believe that. As for who sent us, well, I'm not entirely sure, although I have my suspicions. The point is, we're here now and we're going to do what we can to make sure no more of your patients disappear. What do you think's happening to them, Doctor? Joe asked. I added, and what does it have to do with me? History has been changed, the Doctor said. A little over three months ago, a man who history says should have died didn't. Archduke Ferdinand's death was supposed to set off a diplomatic chain of events which led inexorably to this war. As it happens, as it happened, rather, his survival didn't alter that much. The war still started, likely in much the same way as it would have done. But there were differences, however subtle. And that is the source of the problems here. Annie, could you please tell me, on what date did Britain enter the war? 11th August, I replied. The doctor nodded. Just as I thought. 
The Archduke's survival extended the negotiations and diplomacy before the war began. Everything is running a week later than it was supposed to. Britain should have entered this war on the 4th of August. As it is, Britain knew one week of peace more than it should have done. He turned his head away guiltily. I've seen something like this before. A very long time ago. When? Joe asked, and I assumed he was going to say the Boer War or similar. But no. 1916, the doctor replied. Something delayed the Somme offensive by over a month. That's when I first learned about the Archduke's survival and Annie's role in saving him. At the time, I was preoccupied by something else, something which threatened the entire galaxy, and I couldn't return to investigate. But I should have found a way to come back here a lot sooner. He sighed. Joe reached out and put a hand on his shoulder. You couldn't have done that, could you? She said reassuringly. You said you weren't able to control the TARDIS that well, even before the Time Lords exiled you to Earth. And anyway, isn't it their job to sort out things like this? You know, to stop history from going all wibbly-wobbly. Wibbly-wobbly? The doctor repeated incredulously. Honestly, Joe, where do you come up with phrases like that? His tone was admonishing, but Joe and I could see the smile playing at the corners of his mouth. And anyway, I rather think that's exactly what the Time Lords are doing by sending us here. They're giving me a nudge, or did you think it was coincidence that we arrived here at Annie's hospital just as all this is happening? Well, you did just say it was a case of serendipitous synchronicity or something, I pointed out. And that's as good a term as any for the manipulations of the Time Lords, the Doctor replied, still not offering any explanation as to who or what these Time Lords were. When I was in 1916, the web of time had been seriously damaged by changes to the timeline. Raw temporal energy had seeped out into the world and was trying to set history right. He stopped, looking down at the teacup in my hand. Set it right how? I asked. He looked up at me, his face and his voice now grave. By killing everyone who should have died in the month the battle was delayed. We sat in silence for a moment, Joe and I taking in what the doctor had said before he continued. On that occasion... The energy seeped into the ground and animated a morass of dead and decayed matter. It consumes soldiers who should have died in the offensive, trying to rebalance the casualty figures. If I hadn't stopped it, then it would have overrun the entire trench line. Is that what's happening here? Joe asked, the note of fear in her voice mimicking my own sense of dread. Those Poor boys are walking out into the dark to be consumed by an undead time monster. The doctor shook his head. The damage here is far smaller. A week's delay, no more. And at a much earlier stage of the war. The principle is the same, though I'll grant you that. Time is trying to cauterize the wound by removing those who should have died in that first week. But there is far less temporal energy here for it to use. I shouldn't think it would have the necessary potential to animate a decayed body. But it could inhabit a healthy one. He glanced at me for a moment. And that, I believe, is what's happening. Somewhere in this hospital there is a man or a woman who has been possessed by the raw energy of time. They're what's driving those poor men out into the darkness. How is it doing it? I asked, deciding to accept that everything he'd said was true. It may have been impossible, but just at that moment it made perfect sense of the madness. The doctor looked at me, and I could feel sorrow coming off him in waves. By choosing its victims, he said. 
All of the men who've been lost so far have been deeply traumatized by this war. Shell shock, post-traumatic stress, call it what you will. They were recovering, yes, but they were still teetering on the edge of that abyss. It wouldn't have taken much to push them over, to convince them that walking into the night and losing themselves was better than trying to carry on. <gasps> That's horrible, said Joe with a shudder. I remembered what Private Taylor had said to us outside in the cold and the dark. Four years. That's what Taylor said. Four years. That's how it's doing it, isn't it? It's lying to them, telling them the war is going to drag on and on, and that all they have left is the war. I looked at Joe. She looked away, unable to meet my eye. Then the doctor said softly, I'm afraid it doesn't have to lie, Annie. And I felt the world collapse from under me. Joe made us some more tea. It was the small hours of the morning, and none of us had had any sleep. But I didn't feel tired. I was just numb. As I drank the tea, the warmth started to flow through me. When I'd finished it, I voiced a thought that had been niggling at the back of my mind. You thought it was me, didn't you? The doctor nodded. I'm afraid I did. Since you were at the assassination attempt when this all started, you seemed the most likely candidate for the time energy to have possessed. But as I said, it appears to have simply been a case of synchronous serendipity. What is that exactly? Joe asked. Apart from possible evidence that the Time Lord sent us here. It's quite simple, Joe. The doctor said, Synchronicity is the principle that a coincidence can happen without any causal link, but still be of significance. Some people believe that certain key coincidences aren't merely the product of chance. They believe that fate has a part to play in ensuring that certain people meet when they do, or someone like Annie is in the right place at the right time. And... Serendipity? Joe asked. It's good luck, I said. At last there was something I could answer. The doctor smiled and nodded. Precisely so. Such as finding the thing you need or learning something you need to know without really looking for it. So you mean, said Joe with dawning realisation, that our meeting Annie reminded you about the failed assassination of the Archduke? And because you remembered it, you could work out what's happening. And so now we're going to find out who exactly has been possessed by this time energy. Indeed we are, Joe, the doctor said with a smile. Or, to be more precise, you are. Me? Joe gasped. Don't look so surprised, Joe, the doctor said. What it calls for is a good piece of detective work. I want you to find out who was talking to the vanished men just before they disappeared and the order in which all the patients were admitted. It's going to require tact and charm. And that's much more your area than mine. All right, Doctor, Joe conceded with some trepidation. But what are you going to be doing while I'm hunting for a time-possessed murderer? I shivered at the phrase. I'm going back to June to have a proper look at what actually happened to prevent the assassination. You see, I have a suspicion it wasn't all just down to Annie. You're going to leave me here? Joe exclaimed angrily. What if you can't get back? It'll be just a short hop. The doctor tried to placate her. All I'll have to do is connect Annie to the TARDIS's telepathic circuits and use her memory of the assassination to travel back to it. As soon as we're done there, I'll just flick the fast return switch and we'll be right back here. The Time Lords won't let me strand you here, Joe. One person in the wrong time, with knowledge of what's supposed to happen, can be as dangerous to the timelines as anything that's already occurred here. 
He smiled broadly and almost convincingly. Everything will be all right. You'll see. The doctor led me through the hospital to one of the seldom-used storerooms. I expected to find it a mess, everything coated in dust and with cobwebs hanging from every shelf. I did not expect to find a tall blue box in there. It effectively filled the storeroom, keeping us from getting any further in. But the box was apparently what the doctor was after. He pulled a key from his pocket, unlocked the door and went inside. I waited for him to re-emerge with whatever he had come to collect. Suddenly, his head reappeared around the edge of the door. Well, don't you stand there, Annie, he said with a tone of gentle admonishment. We've got things to do. Come on in. I took a step back, looking the box up and down again. It was going to be an awfully tight squeeze. Shaking my head, I took a deep breath and stepped through the door. It's bigger on the inside. It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. The outside is smaller than the inside because it's somehow bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. The thought screamed around my head in infinite variety. It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. I'm standing in a vast white room, looking at a huge table covered in strange lights and buttons with a great glass column at its centre. Other doors at the far side of the room lead to somewhere else, because there is somehow even more than this vast room inside the box. Because it's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. All of these thoughts have passed through my mind in a second. I breathed out. The doctor was stood at the table in the centre of the room. He leant forward and adjusted something, and the doors closed behind me. He looked over and smiled. Welcome to the TARDIS, he said with a smile and a twinkle. I considered telling him that his box was bigger on the inside than it was on the outside. It seemed foolish, though. It clearly knew already. I looked around the room agog. The doctor adjusted something else and suddenly a wheezing, groaning sound filled the room. The central column began to rise and fall. The doctor gripped the console tightly, staring intently up at the column, seemingly willing it to move. Then the column and the sound stopped. The doctor straightened up, adjusted his jacket and turned to me with a smile. Well... Assuming that I'm right and Joe and I were sent here for a reason, we should have arrived. Arrived? I asked, trying to accept the idea that we had somehow travelled. Arrived where? June, he replied, flicking a switch that opened the doors and striding towards them. Not knowing what else to do, I followed. He was right. Outside, it was June. And it was Sarajevo. I blinked in the sunlight of a morning I remembered. I looked around. We were on the Latin Bridge. Ahead of us, the bridge met the road on the riverbank, the Apple Key stretching across in front of us, while ahead lay the little side road that would soon play host to tragedy. Off to the left, I could see the spot where the bomb had exploded, destroying the car behind the Archdukes. I'd learned the full extent of the day's events from the papers in the week that followed. The Archduke and his wife, Duchess Sophie, had arrived in Sarajevo early that morning. They were met by the governor of Bosnia-Herzegovina, who accompanied them in the motorcade. They were headed to the town hall where Franz Ferdinand was due to make a speech when the bomb was thrown at them. The bomb bounced off the Archduke's car and rolled under the one behind it before exploding. No one died, though the car was disabled and a number of people were wounded. The man who'd thrown the bomb then tried to kill himself, taking cyanide and jumping into the river. The papers had said that the cyanide just made him vomit, and being high summer, the river had only been a few inches deep. I looked back to the road ahead of us. 
Even now I was sure the Archduke would have finished his speech at the town hall. He and the Duchess would be telling their hosts that they wanted to change their plans for the day, to visit those wounded by the bomb. One of the wounded was the governor's aide, the man who was supposed to tell the driver. As it was, the message wasn't passed on, so the driver would take the original route and turn right onto Franz Josef Street, right in front of us. He'd be told to stop and go back. And when he did stop, the doctor had walked to the corner of the road, looking across to the street where it was all about to happen. I hurried over to him. How can we be here? I asked him. He seemed a little surprised. Are you saying you accept that it's the 28th of June? I nodded. It would seem foolish to deny it. It's most definitely midsummer and most definitely Sarajevo, and there are people over there still looking at the bomb crater. What I don't understand is how. The TARDIS brought us, he replied, gesturing back towards the blue box. A couple of passers by had stopped to look up at it with curious interest. I could see the words police, public, core box written above the door, and there was a lamp on top of the roof. The doctor was still talking. I was right when I said the Time Lords wanted us here. I decided my best course of action was to nod and ask Joe to explain everything when we got back to October. I turned back to the doctor, and as I did so, I saw myself. I knew I'd been sat outside the cafe that morning, but seeing myself there was still a shock. I'd been on holiday, visiting an uncle at the embassy. I'd gone out that morning to see the city, and now there she was. My younger self sat in the cafe drinking tea and paying no real attention to what was going on. She looked so young. I knew it was only three months ago. But looking at myself back then, I realized how much I'd been through in those three months. In a few minutes' time, that young woman would see her first dead body. Then she would fail to save someone's life for the first time. And from there would come the war, the suffering, the horror. I wanted to run over and embrace her, to shield that girl from what she was going to endure. I began to cry. The doctor didn't say anything. He just put his arm around my shoulder. I looked away from the scene. And that's when I saw him. Gavrilo Princip. He was standing on the corner opposite the cafe. I'd not noticed him the first time around, but since then, his face had been in every newspaper, his likeness imprinted on my memory. The man who started the war. I'd never seen the man who started this war in the flesh, though. I'd never seen Gavrilo Princip. The papers had said he was a member of the secret Serbian military organization, the Black Hand. It had seemed a very romantic name for a group that would commit so brutal a crime. But then all revolutionary groups believe themselves to be romantics, I suppose. They were fighting for a united Serbia, free of Austro-Hungarian rule. At his trial, Princip called himself a Yugoslav nationalist. Papers had made Princip out to be a monster, a bloodthirsty murderer whose actions precipitated the war and who was an unrepentant killer. That was not the man I saw. He was a boy, younger than most of the soldiers I treated, a nervous, guilty-looking, callow-faced youth. He looked like a child lost in the big city for the first time, and he was about to make the biggest mistake of his life. Without realizing it, I must have moved to take a step towards him because I felt the doctor's arm around my shoulder pull tight. I'm sorry, he said softly. We can't stop it. We can't change anything. History has to take its course, even the one you know it to have taken. All we can do is watch. And so that's what we did. We watched as the Archduke's motorcade came back down the Apple Key from the town hall. 
We watched as it turned into the road in front of us. We watched as the governor called for the car to stop because they turned the wrong way. We watched as a young boy who was about to change the world stepped forward, pulled a gun from his jacket, pointed it into the car and fired. Suddenly, as if out of nowhere, a man barreled into him as he fired the second shot. I heard the doctor murmur, that's not supposed to happen. Outside the cafe, the younger me dropped her teacup in the hurry to reach the car and help. We watched as the teacup shattered on the pavement. We just watched. A crowd was gathering bystanders trying to see what was happening. I already knew. The first shot had hit Duchess Sophie in the abdomen. She would die while we watched, beyond saving before the younger me had even dropped her teacup. The second shot had nicked the Archduke in the neck, barely missing his jugular vein. Any closer to it, and there would have been no way to save him. I realized then, seeing the scene now from this new perspective, how close the Archduke had truly been to death. The man who tackled Princip had knocked that second shot just far enough off target to save him. If the doctor was right, and the Archduke had truly been meant to die, then it wasn't my intervention which made the difference. It was the other man's. The doctor seemed to realize it too. He was scanning the gathering crowd, desperately trying to find the man. Surely it can't have been him. He was muttering. Just then, I saw him slipping away from the crowds towards the cafe. He wasn't a very notable man, rather nondescript, in fact. The kind of man you'd never remember if he passed you in the street. Certainly not a man you'd think to notice after what had just happened. He's there, I whispered, pointing as subtly as I could towards the cafe. The doctor saw the man just before he disappeared inside. Jehoshaphat, it's him! He exclaimed, It's Caxton. But what on earth is he doing here? You know him? I asked incredulous. I do indeed, said the doctor, looking back to me. And I think his being here tells us all we're going to learn today. Come on, let's get back to October. As the doctor walked back to his blue box, I stood for a moment looking over at my younger self as she realized... She couldn't save the Duchess. It was the first time she'd seen someone die. I knew it wouldn't be the last. Within six weeks, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, enraged by the lack of investigation by the Serbian government, would declare war on Serbia. Russia and France would mobilize to support Serbia, and Germany would move to support Austria. The German army would march through Belgium, and so Great Britain would enter the war. Less than three months from now, that young girl would find herself in a world filled with the dead and the dying. I turned away from her, wiped a tear from my eye, and hurried after the doctor. I first met Caxton in 1916. The doctor told me. We were back in the TARDIS now, the column moving up and down as we travelled forward through time to my present day. That time he was with General Haig, arguing to delay the Somme offensive. At the time I thought he was just a rather obnoxious soldier, but it would appear that he's rather more than that. Is change in history... I asked, thinking I was now beginning to properly understand things. So it would seem, the doctor said, rubbing his chin thoughtfully. What bothers me is that he seems to be making such a hash of it. He saw that I was about to ask him what he meant and carried on without my prompting. I told you that the war would have started sooner or later, regardless of the assassination. The diplomatic and imperial factors were too great for it not to. Caxton was determined to save the Archduke, but he wasn't able to stop the bomb going off or save the Duchess. He seems to know the effects these events will have, but not exactly 
How they're going to happen. By now, the doctor was effectively talking to himself, lost in a train of thought. It was the same in 1916. Jackson didn't have any alternatives to the Somme offensive. He just wanted Hay to keep pushing it back or cancel it outright. It's almost as if he knows the vague shape of the war, but none of the finer details. A schoolboy's understanding of history. And he's just running around the war trying to change things with no real idea of what he's doing. He was interrupted by the cessation of the wheezing, groaning sound as the central column stopped moving. The doctor flicked the door switch and then looked up at me. But that's all for me to worry about later. Right now, let's go and see what Joe's been able to find out, shall we? As much time has passed for us as it has for everyone here. That should have given her time for some detective work. Joe was asleep in the office chair, her head slumped over the desk. The doctor brewed some tea while we let her sleep. He set down a cup for her on the desk next to her and then returned to his now discarded pile of odds and ends. And after a few moments, Joe began to stir. Can I smell tea? She mumbled, reaching out and promptly knocking her cup over, spilling it out onto the papers on the desk. Oh, Joe! The doctor chided her with a smile. He handed her his cup and took her now empty one over to his growing tower. Joe sipped gratefully. Did you two manage to get back to the assassination? We did, I told her, and the doctor thinks he knows the man who prevented it. Not the master, she exclaimed, looking to the doctor. No, not the master, he told her, and she relaxed immediately. He's still safely under lock and key in our relative timeline. No, this was a man I've not seen for a long time, but one whose face I could never forget. He quickly told Joe about Caxton and his previous interactions with him. Anyway, he concluded, what have you managed to find out? It wasn't easy, Joe said, gathering up the tea-soaked papers on the desk as best she could. And you didn't leave me any kind of identification or proof of authority. In the end, I got Private Campbell to vouch for me. Even then, the other nurses took some convincing. I knew you'd find a way, Joe, the doctor said with a smile. What did you find? Joe leafed through the damp papers, reminding herself of the facts. Most of the men who disappeared were soldiers, all of them pretty shell-shocked. The only exception was Dr. Penrose. He was one of the last to go. But before this hospital opened up, he was a doctor on the front line. And from what the nurses told me, he was pretty shell-shocked himself when he first transferred here. Whoever's doing this, they're preying on soldiers who are already traumatized. I shivered. Like a predator hunting wounded prey. It was monstrous. The thing is, the soldiers were all getting better physically and psychologically, Joe said. Just as they were starting to get over their suffering, something pushed them back over the edge. I've spoken to the nurses and the patients. I've looked at their medical records. I've checked the ward assignments and transfers. There are only three people who were exposed to all of the victims before they disappeared. One of them's you, Annie, but we can rule you out. The second one is Dr. Penrose. She looked hopefully at the doctor. Could it be him? The only man who's gone since then is Private Taylor. But that could have been a delayed reaction. I'm afraid not, Joe, said the doctor. Whatever happened to Private Taylor happened that day. It wasn't a delayed reaction, however insidious it was. The persuasions would take root while they were still talking to their killer, the effects taking hold almost immediately, while the time energy itself was still present. Whoever's been possessed to do this, it wasn't Penrose. I was afraid you'd say that. Jo glanced at me as she said it, her eyes filled with sadness. 
There's only one person it can be, then. She turned to me. I'm sorry, Annie. It's Private Campbell. I feel like I've been sent to the headmaster's office, Private Campbell said with that little smile of his, plastered across his face as he walked into the doctor's office. It was the first time I'd seen him walking unaided. I found myself staring at his socks as he hobbled into the room. I couldn't bring myself to look him in the eye. Joe followed him in. The doctor was sat on the edge of the desk again. Private Campbell sat in the chair next to me. I'm not in any trouble, am I? he asked. I certainly hope not, said the doctor. Somehow jovial in spite of what we were about to do. I just wanted to ask for your help with what's been going on here. Of course, Doctor, Campbell said eagerly. Anything I can do to help. Then he noticed that I wasn't looking at him. You are right, nurse, he asked, half-joking. When I didn't respond, he seemed to become genuinely concerned. Nurse? Annie? I did my best not to cry. Joe put a comforting hand on my shoulder while the doctor drew Campbell's attention away from me. There's just one thing I need you to do for me, Private Campbell, the doctor continued. And it's a bit strange, but it really will help, I promise. At that, he stood up and stepped aside to reveal his spinning structure of odds and ends on the desk behind him. Campbell raised a confused eyebrow. Could you... Pass me that teacup off the top there. Campbell laughed. I don't see how it'll help, Doctor, but all right. He stood up, glancing at me with what he thought was a reassuring smile before picking up the teacup. The structure immediately stopped spinning. Campbell froze completely still, the cup in his hand. Golden light seemed to be rising from the cup into his hand, First his hand started to glow gold as well, then his arm, and then, in a second, every inch of him was aglow with golden light. As he turned to the doctor, every trace of the charming young man was gone from his expression. Instead, his countenance was that of glowing, vengeful God. It isn't going to end, he said, his voice deeper than it had ever been before, booming even. There will be four years of hell, four years of suffering and slaughter without rhyme or reason. The war to end all wars, and even that won't be the end. All of time, all of history shall be set aflame by war. There is no point, no purpose, no hope. There is only war! What he was saying, and the force with which he said it, could have driven any wounded soul to despair. I could almost feel myself giving into it, losing all hope in the face of this creature's certainty of endless war. There's always hope, the doctor said in reply. His voice didn't boom, his hands didn't glow. He just said it. And as soon as he had, the thing's spell on me was lifted. There's always life, and there's always love, and there's always hope. He continued. The war is terrible, but it will end. Every night gives way to dawn. Every ending is a beginning. There is always hope. And there is no need for you. The thing faltered. Its hand started shaking. The teacup dropping to the floor and shattering. The remaining tea leaves scattered on the floor. I found myself wondering if my life would be measured in broken teacups. I found myself wondering how anyone's life is measured in the end. I have... The thing started to say, the power in its voice suddenly diminished. History must be healed. I must do my duty. I must. Then suddenly, it was 
Campbell talking again. I need to do my duty. Please, I need to do my duty. I can't let them down again. The doctor took half a step back, shocked for once, not knowing how to deal with this. I realized that I did. It's all right, Private Campbell, I said as I stood up. It's all right. You've done your duty. I took his hand. It didn't feel any different to anyone else's. You've done more than anyone could ask of you. You've done enough. You can rest now, Private Campbell. He turned to me, those golden eyes gazing into mine. Peter, he said, his voice his own again. Call me Peter. And then the golden light faded away. The smirk crept across his face once more. And he died. Later, the doctor explained that Private Peter Campbell should have died of his wounds two weeks earlier. Time had spared him, using him to try and set itself back on track. It had tried to use him to take hope away from others, but in doing so, he and I had met, and it accidentally gave hope back to him. The doctor and Joe put everything back in order before they left. I asked the doctor what would happen now. Caxton was still at large, and the war still raged. Time will tell, he told me with a smile. It always does. With that, he stepped into the TARDIS. Joe embraced me, then quickly followed him in. watched as the strange blue box faded away and then realized I could hear shells falling. First in the distance and then drawing closer, I reached out to where the TARDIS had stood just to make sure it wasn't still there. As I did so, I fancied I saw a glimmer of gold light on my hand, but it was just that. Doctor Who, Horrors of War by Justin Richards was read by Katie Manning and is published by BBC Worldwide. Audible hopes you've enjoyed this program.